I wish I could just like have all my notes in my head like a computer and I just like in a mini second have read them all. Mm. What like to say it? You wish you could actually be clever <laughs> and hold information <gasps> oh, in your head. <laughs> Hello, welcome to our first podcast. We're in Flats 26, and that is the podcast you are listening to. Um, Emily is going to introduce what book we are going to be talking about in this podcast. Hi, Jess. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) I just wasn't expecting that. Hi, Em. (laughs) Okay, um, so the book that I chose to read this time is called Battleborn. It's by an author called Claire Vay Watkins and was published in 2012. Um, it's a collection of short stories. Um, so I should say that um, we don't intend this podcast to just be for people who've actually read the book we're talking about. Um, so hopefully if you haven't read it, you'll still find this thought provoking and we'll try not to give away too many big spoilers. Um, so... The reason I chose this book um, is because I actually read it about a year or two years ago and it really stuck with me. Um, It's quite hard to describe but essentially it's about um, lots of different people living in Nevada. Um, So most of the stories are set in Nevada and it's a fragmentary narrative but there are themes that are threaded all the way through and one of the things that stood out the most for me um, is the way that Claire Watkins integrates um, history of Nevada and in particular um, the effect on the land with um, Western expansion and ties that into the everyday lives of the people living in Nevada. Um, so do you think that sounds about right, Jess? Mm-hmm. Okay. I would just add as well that it won a lot of awards. It did. I can't remember exactly what ones, but it did win a lot of awards. It was also yeah. her, it was her debut book, not her debut novel. But um, obviously, because it's a short story collection, I think she's since published a novel called oh. Gold Fame Citrus, mm. um, which is a dystopia, but not a dystopia, yeah. because she, I think we'll discuss that later, the reason she doesn't like um, dystopias or that as a mm. genre. Um, uh, but yeah, it's based on similar things, I think, to Battleborn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I guess we could start by talking about um, what struck us the most about the collection as a whole and what's um, stayed with us in particular. Did Mm -hmm. you have anything on that, Jess? Um, Yeah, I think I really liked it. Me too. Um, I liked liked her tone. I liked her writing. I liked... I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say I liked the characters, but then you don't need to to find something good, do you? I think Mm. it's it was a really interesting collection um I found some struck a chord with me more than others did and for various reasons but I thought in general as a whole there were some quite strong themes linking the whole the whole collection together and I thought there were some really interesting implications that we could talk about about um kind of our relationship with the land which you've Mm. already mentioned because that plays a big part but also things I think that I liked best were the the relationships between people Mm. um 
And what I was going to say, the thing that struck me most, or the thing, because I, I read it a couple of times, the thing that kind of really stood out the first time I read it was the way she deals with, or the way she talks about the past um, and its relationship with the present, its relationship with the future, just the way time is used, um, yeah. the passage of time, and the way the past, as we conceptualise it, is almost, I don't know, a very strong theme. So she, there's this idea of people kind of narrating the past or the past being something which becomes a story. I think that's the first thing that really struck me about it. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that struck me about it. And just to um, pick up on the thing you said about the relationships between people, um, that's kind of one of the things I loved about it. It's it's almost like she can she can capture a glance she's capturing fleeting moments and unspoken things which I think is so hard to do in literature mm-hmm. so it's not just action 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 big event big event it's almost about nothing and everything at the same time yeah which and is that's amazing. actually when we obviously say we're not going to give spoilers I think it would be really hard to give spoilers <laughs> yeah. about this book because that's yeah. not where the value lies really it doesn't lie in plot twists and yeah. even necessarily narrative structure it kind of lies in those tiny interactions and Mm. yeah between people and the way people think about each other and talk to each other is so interesting yeah so um going back to sort of history in the past that's a theme throughout the collection the idea that um the past is always there with us and it's our histories are always there with us and that our histories are connected the history of the land is connected to the history of its people over the centuries um, which um, is brought up in the very first story called Ghosts, Cowboys. Um, she weaves this amazing narrative of the history of Nevada with her own autobiographical history with that of other um, residents of Nevada throughout time. But she doesn't just have one narrative. There's not just one dominant story of, you know, this is what happened. Um, there's competing narratives. She starts the story again and again and again at different points, at different years. Um, I find that really powerful. Um, and I think it's it's very political as well because she's talking about stories and narratives that have been silenced or that mm-hmm. um, aren't dominant. Um, so um, there's definitely a lot of that is to do with class. So most of the um, characters, protagonists you would say a working class or potentially people that aren't supposedly heroes of history or mentioned mm-hmm. in the history books. Um, and there's um, that's also to do with gender. Um, a lot of the narratives or most of the stories in the collection focus on women um, and young women, teenage girls. Um, and in a way, she's... She's she's suggesting, to me, she's suggesting that we can't just naively escape our past, and we shouldn't, but at the same time, we can move... We, we do what we have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so all her characters are dispersed throughout the desert, um, supposedly living in isolation in this vast wasteland of a desert, but actually she populates that desert, um, she humanises it, gives it personal, emotive physical stories um, of these people, their past and their lives, to, to give value and to 
give value to somewhere that's just been deemed um, unneeded and just waste. Um, so the government, they can dump their nuclear waste there and the people um, who are living in poverty can be forgotten about and she brings their lives to the forefront and gives them value. Mm-hmm. I think that relationship as well between the two themes of past, present and the landscape, the land, is really interesting because there's a kind of like interplay between the two. So that kind of you can, to a certain extent, reinvent your past or narrate Mm. it in the sense that there is, as soon as something's gone, it's become a narrative, it's become a story because Mm. it's no longer right in front of you. But to a very, in a very kind of real way, you can't completely escape it. You can't completely rewrite it because it's mm. written on the land. It's written on our environment, even if that's not natural land. Like, obviously, mm. there is a lot of reference to that and to the kind of, like, um, the nuclear testing and stuff that went on. And also, yeah, the kind of very man-made environments of Las Vegas and things yeah. like that, where it's almost like that... <laughs> it's kind of like a defiance of of mm. the desert, defiance of like that hostility. Like we we can conquer any kind of environment and live here, mm. um, but in a very kind of it's not just the natural environment or kind of cities and things like that. It's also just more um, mundane environments like the houses we live in and the, the yeah. objects we surround ourselves with. So the which is in Ghosts Cowboys. There's a there's a bit where. And that, that story is quite autobiographical, right? She's talking yeah. about um, her ancestors, kind of their relation to the history of Nevada. She's also talking about her own life. Um, she talks about her landlord painting over some writing on, on the wall. Mm-hmm. And it says, H loves Leo 1909. She says, how can I do this? She doesn't want to paint over it, but she's I think she's painting the room as well for a new baby, yeah. which makes it even more kind of pertinent. And... Um, the narrator, who is obviously, well, we assume it's Claire herself, says, I'd like to say you do it because you have to. We all do. And it's that it's that constant tension between the past and the present. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it is a tension. But in a way, she wants to bring it to the surface, I think. And there's that theme of excavation and digging throughout the collection, whether it's literal digging, like in The Gold Rush, Um, or whether it's metaphorical digging of bringing that past back up. I think that she she doesn't want to ignore it because its effects are there, even if they're invisible, and to ignore it is to dismiss those experiences and their impact on generations to come and Mm -hmm. people who live there currently, Um, which again ties into treatment of the land because um, by this sort of violent but slow effect on the land um the coal mining the nuclear testing it's constantly bringing up that which was buried um whether it's earth from miles beneath the surface and bringing that back up um that she links that to its effect on people and how um violence against people can sometimes also be slow and invisible and subtle and therefore sometimes is not acknowledged that it exists, um, and in particular violence against women, um, because she talks in an interview about rape culture and how before 
don't know who it was, but came up with that term, before the idea of rape culture was expressed verbally, we all experienced it and its effects, but it was very hard to explain and to describe. So um, women end up just burying it and not expressing it because it's hard to express but now that phrase has been coined it's everywhere because it strikes a chord with everyone everyone can relate to it um in the same way that her I think her bringing up the past her excavating the past um is giving a voice and bearing witness to that suffering that has remained invisible Mm-hmm. over the time giving something a name makes it real yeah and exactly. that and that can be a radical act just naming something yeah exactly and that's why I like the diggings which is one of the stories that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because it's the only one that's like really a historical yeah. story um and that's um follows two characters who go um west to try and dig for gold in the gold rush that, I mean, yeah, that's an obvious metaphor of digging, but it, it unearths the roots of um, land use in Nevada and the roots of the myth around the West, the idea that it was this um, untamed wilderness and that it needed to be it needed to be pacified and controlled and everything in it was up for grabs. And that's really interesting. That's what I was going to say as well, because however much the environment and the landscape and the land is our past it also in in that story in particular but kind of referenced in other stories but not as blatantly it's also a symbol of the future and there's you know that's especially pertinent for the gold rush and throughout that story because the two brothers go there and the one brother in particular not the one who's narrating it Errol is his name um he has the fever right he has gold fever fever. yeah Yeah, lump fever (laughs) um he is pinning all his hopes yeah on the land and it holds it's like it's salvation yeah that's what he's pinning on it and she explicitly references gold and likens it to god i think she says in california gold was what god was in the rest of the country everything everywhere yeah it's symbolic it's not just gold it symbolizes for errol it symbolizes getting the girl he loves yeah having the life he wants and everything is pinned on it yeah and that and that attitude to the land that digging it up that draining it for all it's got um well in that character errol led to this insatiable greed and need to find gold to find his fortune and the story really brings to earth um the <laughs> nice <laughs> that was totally off the cuff um the kind of senseless violence that is created in that environment um there's loads of instances of racial discrimination just random violence is not a nice place to live um brutal brutal yeah um so i liked that one a lot i was going to say something about um oh yeah so the expectation and I think this kind of occurred to me because of that story because I think it was the most obvious manifestation of it but I kind of linked it to the other stories as well is that all of the characters throughout the book the stories are quite bleak Mm -hmm. um yeah nothing really that amazing happens to any of the characters it's all kind of it's not depressing it's not like it's completely hopeless, but they struggle to find any kind of mercy or yeah salvation redemption. redemption. Um, 
And I think that it's that interplay between expectation and reality and where they meet where that kind of breakdown happens for these characters because mm. it happens to Errol, obviously. Um, it happens in... just trying to look at the titles. So Wish You Were Here, which yeah, I think I was, was my favourite story. Yeah, me too. Um, and that's, I mean, it's kind of the opposite. It's very mundane. It's yeah. like set in the present day. It's just about a couple, really, called Carter and Marin. Um, they've just had a baby. Yeah. And it's that absolute kind of... And again, it's the it's the clash between the past and the present and the yeah. future because what you were in the past has suddenly ceased to be, and you're coming to terms with that and thinking like you're looking around you and like not recognizing anything. You're not recognizing who you are or who your partner is, and you're hanging out with old friends, so you're kind of reminded of that past all the time, but you just can't come to terms with how things have changed. And that links on, I think, um, to the kind of uh, women stuff because yeah. I think what's really interesting in that story is how Marin's experience is similar to Carter's but it is in a very qualitative way quite different as well and that's because she's a woman yeah because do you mean because he places um, unrealistic expectations on her as a mother mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's it's that I, when she gets pregnant her purpose her identity almost gets kind of like re I don't know so kind of sex is kind of a big part of that story there's like this kind of simmering sexuality through all of it and she references it in the past quite a lot and it's almost like when as soon as she gets pregnant her sexuality or her her body is like completely repurposed it goes from this kind of like sexual thing that she can use to enjoy herself to like a vessel and the way he yeah the way he like obsesses over how much milk she can produce and the, because yeah. she can't produce enough she somehow failed yeah and it's like as soon as she, yeah as soon as she's pregnant um she ceases to be her like he he expects her to just be a, a standard mother mm-hmm. and his idea of what a mother is so she hasn't she becomes really... his mother oh, yeah oh <laughs> Oh, I didn't oh, think God. of that. <laughs> but she does, and she's yeah. making that connection. It's yeah. like so horrific. There are so many lines I loved in it. Yeah. Well, like, not loved. They were so brutal and awful. Like, yeah. when, so they're in bed when she's when she's pregnant. When once he would have touched her, he leans down and speaks to her midsection. <laughs> he comes home and doesn't ask her anything about her, just yeah. what have you put in your body. I like that bit about him speaking to her midsection because that's quite like a cliched image isn't it of Mm -hmm. a loving couple having a baby like the man often like kind of kisses your pregnant belly and Uh speaks to it and that's quite like cheesy and stuff and she's just like treating it as if it it is just denying her as an individual yeah her individuality yeah and it's like what happens to your identity in a situation like that the bit about his mum the bit about his mum is so funny as well like I don't remember that bit they they go to it's one of like my favourite lines they go to um the mum's house and oh yeah and he also she also says a a bit because they've gone to her mum's house and her his mum sorry his mum not her mum um is like his his idea of what she oh, should yeah. become, right? Yeah. And she has doesn't own her own driving licence, she doesn't own her own bank account, she's oh, cooking yeah. her birthday meal for herself. She says, she returned to the house and over dinner she saw quite clearly that she was attending the birthday celebration of a 50-year-old woman who had never had an orgasm. (laughs) And it's like, it's that. It's pitching that kind of 
<laughs> the two against each other. The yeah. sexuality and um Motherhood, and fair enough if he wants that, but he shouldn't expect that of this woman he's married because he didn't think that she was like that before. Mm. So why should she be like that now? Yeah. What is the most cutting line in that? Where he says... Oh, um, oh God. I don't want to say it and ruin it. Okay, yeah, let me find it. This is one of the best things about the author, the way she like builds the tension up and, yeah. up, and up to this one line. And it's so simple, but it's yeah. so... Brutal. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Yeah, so she's talking about um, him asking her, or her trying to do loads of things so she can produce enough milk. Um, So it says, Finally, they went to formula entirely. Another disappointment her husband has endured silently, or silently until today. In the rental car on the drive up from Reno, he asked whether she was experiencing any pain from stopping, any pressure. No, she said. No, said Carter thoughtfully. I guess you wouldn't. Oh, God. I want to strangle him. Brutal. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I love, though, that epitomises that the kind of really subtle ways that people just destroy each other just in everyday conversation. Yeah. And continuing on the, that theme of um, violence against women and women's sexuality throughout the collection, we obviously have to talk about the story called Rondine Alnido. I'm sure that's not how you say it. That's how I'm saying it. Um, which is what, like, one of the hardest ones to read, I guess, mm-hmm. especially when you read it the second time, when you know what's going to happen. Um, I guess it's probably one of the most provocative ones as well. Um, it's about two teenage girls who live in a deadbeat town, I guess, not much going on, um, and want some adventure, want to express themselves, want basically just being teenagers, but they have no like positive outlet for it where they are. Um, so they go to Las Vegas, and one thing leads to another, and basically end up in a hotel room with four um, college men Mm. I think they go to college don't they yeah yeah um and it's hard to explain it um (laughs) this is actually one of the spoilers you could say (laughs) this is a spoiler (laughs) I think it's basically the kind of um not it's not the narrator I keep saying that because it's the protagonist because it's written in third person Mm. um she takes her friend doesn't she really because yeah. her friend's moved from somewhere else and her friend um lena has just mm. been broken up with by her boyfriend and the, impl- the it's kind of suggested that it's because she was frigid or she didn't put out or have sex with him yeah. or whatever so they've almost gone to las vegas to rectify that yeah <laughs> the the no so it's not protagonist or is it <laughs> it's she's the protagonist yeah okay <laughs> the protagonist um has that kind of, like, frenzied wish just to do something drastic and to express herself, but it's coming out in this way where she's she's forcing Lena to enter into a situation which she's not... doesn't want, um, not ready for. And so I find it really interesting because it's not just a story about how a woman gets taken advantage of Mm -hmm. or it's a rape. It's a lot more blurred than that. There's a lot more grey areas because... The other girl, 
never once wants it to stop really and when she could have stopped it um she just keeps going and keeps um I want to say peer pressuring but that sounds not that serious but keeps just putting her vulnerable friend into this scenario yeah um and like I've I've read some reviews of the collection that just kind of say oh this is about this is a story about rape but I don't think that really captures what the story's about at all no it's so much more subtle than that Mm. and it's this is the difference between outright rape and rape culture I think because yeah Yeah, definitely yeah the kind of idea that you can just say well if a girl gives consent it's fine and if she doesn't then it's not Mm. is not true because we live in we live in a culture which makes rape okay, and it makes it okay for girls as well. So even if, you know, Lena never actually says no, it's still, it's as fucked up as rape, but, yeah, and that's the thing, the concepts don't quite map onto it. I guess that's where, like, I guess that's where the whole legal system based on society's norms falls short because there is there is another area yeah. of violence that isn't kind of, you it isn't expressed within laws in it's that more way. insidious yeah. i don't know how you would capture it in law i don't think you can deal with the problem in a kind of top down way like that you no. need to fix the society at the bottom yeah. you need to fix patriarchy ultimately yeah, like to be definitely. able to get rid of that and you can't deny that the characters um, they do express sexuality and they do express a desire to explore that part of themselves. They're teenage girls, but they're developing that. And so just to then say, oh, well, they're just girls, it, it mm. denies that f- real thing that happens to you at that age. And you see that when they're, like, walking around trying to get the attention of guys. And actually, if they'd have just had a bit of a flirt and had some fun and then went home it would have been totally different yeah but I think the point of the story is showing how because of rape culture and value and and everything that that female sexuality and independence is just met with violence it could yeah. be met with something much more well <laughs> gentle yeah affectionate yeah um equal um, it's, it's hard to put your finger on it, isn't it? Yeah. But how evocative is that bit where they are sitting in the car and just before they're kind of go, they're, they're at Las Vegas, they're oh, in the yeah. car just about to get out and kind of go exploring and they're mm. kind of swapping their, their makeup. Yeah. It reminded me of um the, that makeup you'd get on the front of girls' magazines. <laughs> oh, yeah, because the it, tiny ones. Yeah, <laughs> like I think they use kind of blue eyeshadow and yeah. that lip oil which tastes like fruit and it's yeah. such little girl yeah. kind of things to use but that actually that kind of um underlines quite nicely the way girls are taught to turn themselves into sexual objects from a very young age yeah, but they're using those things which are quite innocent for little girls to own but they're using them to make themselves look sexy for yeah. these college men and also they lie about their age as well and they lie about where they live. I mean, you don't really know definitively whether the guys believe them or not. No. But I guess in a court of law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's every reason that they they could have believed them, they would have believed them. Yeah, the reason why I like this one is because you can't just draw the argument that 
you can't conclude that oh well we should stop sexualizing girls and and teenage girls shouldn't be allowed to wear makeup and that kind of thing because that's still just about confining female sexuality and you know leads to the handmaid's tale yeah so she's not denying that aspect of their character and that development within them you're right it's the way it's met it's yeah. not that that ex- that expression or that need to express some kind of sexuality is wrong in them it's the way it's met and interpreted yeah and perhaps the way they you know the the way they view it as well in the sense that they see them they see or Lena certainly sees herself as having to put out to be of value to men yeah so maybe she isn't necessarily ready and I think the context of their lives is important in this as well because it shows how society can give people no other options like there's a lot of description at the beginning given to um the the life of the girl that we don't know the name of the main one and she works in that really greasy pizza place behind the scenes and you just get this image of her life as she finds it very repressed and boring and unglamorous and there's nothing she hasn't got anything going for her you feel that impression so her growing up there with that life has obviously pushed her towards it's just like need to go to Vegas and to do something yeah. crazy. And that inevitability is there as well for Lena when they get back and she's obviously pretty messed up yeah. by what she's experienced. And we then learn that she has started a relationship with that guy from the pizza joint in his trailer. And, you know, the girl, um, the protagonist witnesses him hit her. And it's all said in quite a kind of, you know... I don't know, like, hurried a long way that it's just mm. kind of said at the end, but it's kind of implied, like, what her life has become, her expectations yeah. and stuff. Everything's yeah. shaped them. She's gone down that path, and maybe she yeah. wouldn't have if she hadn't have had those yeah. experiences. The trauma of it definitely stays with her and reverberates through every conscious and unconscious choice she makes, really. Yeah. But maybe that's a a slight glimmer of redemption is that the protagonist is telling someone about it for the first time Mm -hmm. to her new boyfriend it all happens with her asking him what's the worst thing he's ever done and then him asking her and she tells him and I think they're implying she's never told anyone before so maybe by her telling him it's it's like her finally admitting what happened and Mm -hmm. asking for forgiveness as well yeah there's definitely a kind of confession element to it. Let's talk yeah. about the um, the contrast with 9-11 as well. Because the story oh, yeah. ends in such an interesting way. And I like, really struggled with it. But yeah. then we spoke about it. Um, so it isn't like explicitly referred to as 9-11 or Twin Towers or anything. But it's a scene where they're at school and they get the announcement. And it's like... 9-11 is totally linked to what happened to them in that hotel room in Vegas. Um, yeah, which is quite a bold move, I guess. Yeah. But I think we were, we were like kind of discussing it the other day because I was struggling to see the connection. It was just like, or saying, why did she choose to end the story that way? Yeah. But then you said something really interesting about... Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> the kind of juxtaposition between the everyday kind of violence which is done Mm. and that kind of on a very domestic scale with that very international form of violence you know the kind of biggest you can get 
compared yeah. to that kind of really those tiny acts that are done every single day. Yeah, I want to find that. It is done really, really well, and it's and it's kind of pulled into her experience and the way she is looking at Lena and obviously regretting. Oh, that's it. Yeah, she. So they hear the news and she's struggling to feel any emotion. Yes. About it because I guess it's such an abstract thing. Yeah. Which I can completely um, identify yeah. with. When it happened, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't yeah. see it as people, or you know, yeah. it was just buildings falling down on TV. And she, so she looks at Lena because she knows when she looks at Lena, it makes her feel bad. And she, and she wants feels to, emotion and, yeah. She wants to kind of feel those feelings. So she feels more human, I guess. Yeah, so it ends with... Um, Lena looking at her friend to try and feel something, to feel shame because she feels bad that she isn't feeling anything for 9-11 and Lena is crying wholeheartedly and this brings the protagonist comfort because she says a person can change in an instant this almost solely will take her away from here so is that because um, because she's seeing Lena crying it's, it's kind of transforming her in her grief Yeah, I just, I don't know. It's so difficult. Is it about Lena changing or is it about when our protagonist looks at Lena, she then suddenly has this rush of emotion and shame. So that is giving her hope because she's changed in that instant from feeling numb to feeling something. See, when I first read it, I first read it as she's glad that something more terrible has happened. Oh, that's so, interesting. So it's like what she's done to Lena is put in perspective. Okay. Because Lena's really upset now and she's not upset about whatever she did to her. But I, I don't know. The more I read it, the more I think that's not, that's not yeah. what's going on. But maybe more than one thing is going on. Yeah. And then in the last paragraph, oh, yeah, it's so good. Um, I think she links... Um, Las Vegas and what it symbolises with what happened um, saying as if she doesn't know the instability of a tall tower a city's hunger for ruin as this, as if this weren't what she came for she's talking about both things she's, then she's linked it to going to Vegas and it, it just reiterates that thing where she, she knew that they were going to get into trouble and that's what she wanted she wanted that destruction and that mm-hmm. ruin and again in every one of these stories, I think, characters are bringing about their own downfall. Yes. <laughs> again and again and again. They're expecting the best, but they're acting in a way which is going to bring about... Yeah. Or the best. they're expecting the worst and they're not allowing themselves to be happy. Like, I think they, a lot of them have experienced things which have made them give up a little bit, so they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't feel like they deserve someone okay yeah that's interesting so they're kind of like purposefully failing it's kind of like someone who doesn't revise for an exam because they don't want it to <laughs> yeah in a it way, to be yeah. that they've tried and then failed um but there was a lot of elements which reminded me of kind of kind of classic classical tragedy in a oh, way okay yeah like that characters what like it was inevitable that it was gonna go wrong is that what you mean not necessarily but that they bring about their own ruin and maybe that there's some it's not maybe not about the individual characters but more about that 
I think that there's quite a lot about just universal human, mm-hmm. human nature, human truths, like humans' kind of um, obsession for narrative, yeah. obsession for stories. Um, also their, I mean, the diggings is the most obvious example, but I don't know what... Humans want something so bad that, yeah, I guess that downfall is almost inevitable because reality is always going to be less than the story you've built up for yourself, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any other ones that kind of show that clearly. So, um, in uh, um, The Last Thing We Need, mm-hmm. when Thomas Gray finds those letters on the side of the road, mm. and they belong to someone called Dwayne <laughs> Moser. Dwayne. <laughs> he, um, he says, he says um, something in one of the letters, because the whole story is written in the form of letters to Dwayne. He says, like all our memories, he's talking about him and his wife, we like to take it out once in a while and lay it flat on the kitchen table, the way my wife does with her sewing patterns, where we line up the shape of our life against that which we thought it would be by now Mm. that's quite an explicit example of it yeah and also in that one which kind of relates to it um in the sense that some sometimes love or life isn't always what you think it's going to be is when they say and i'm looking for the quote looking 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 (laughs) i've got two bloody notebooks ah yeah also in that story, the um, narrator says that sometimes love is a wound that opens and closes, opens and closes all our lives, which is really brilliant because, again, it ties into that idea that people's lives mirror or are affected by the land and how we're opening and closing the land, mm-hmm. like a wound that we never let heal. Yeah. Um, and also how, like you said in the thing that you quoted... It's about the expectations versus the reality. Yeah. And that could totally... So that on the micro level of kind of like individuals wanting, wanting, wanting and not getting, sometimes partly to do with the way they're themselves acting and bringing about that, that kind of failure. On a, it works on a macro level as well because as humans, as a species, we're always wanting yeah. and we're kind of bringing about our own destruction probably in a more, I mean, every day, obviously, through violence and stuff, but in a very, very wide sense of what we're doing to the land, what we're doing to the environment, mm. where our greed is definitely getting the better of us in that sense, and we are bringing about our own destruction all the time. Which is because we don't think about future generations in our dominant culture we don't really think it's it's hard for us to have a concept of like 10 generations in the future Mm -hmm. whereas more indigenous cultures and stuff that's their primary thought is how is this going to affect like 10 generations in the future and that completely would change the whole way you view your place on the earth your attitude to the land your treatment of it yeah um the way she talks about the land as well kind of reminds me of something quite obscure which 
it only I only kind of thought of because I wrote my my dissertation on it um but ecofeminism was kind of like or is a movement which tries to create some kind of symbiosis between um the feminist movement and the environmentalist movement and it links female oppression to um the oppression of nature and it's quite um I think that is this collection it's quite complex yeah. but yeah it completely reminded me of it just the way that she sees humans as continuous with the land around them um mm. and I want that made me think because she's written an essay Claire Vey Watkins has written an essay what is it called and what was it on <laughs> sorry folks <laughs> Oh, facts don't matter. <laughs> well, she wrote this essay. We'll try and find what it was called and where it was. Um, but in it, she was talking about sexism. She's relating it to kind of her individual experience as a writer. But she... Oh, it's called On Pandering. Yes. That's what it's called. Because she's talking about how she, in writing Battleborn, how she herself says she was pandering to a male white audience. And she was writing like a man Mm. to me I I do know what she means by that I think she does in some senses write like a man but there are certain elements of Battleborn that I think it's so obvious it was written by a woman Mm. yeah I agree I think like she's obviously being too hard on herself but she's getting to a specific point in general and it's not only that she's writing to a white male like generic audience literati yeah (laughs) she actually is thinking of the white male authors that she's admired Mm -hmm. um throughout like the literary canon i guess and especially those that have written about the west and she's writing to please them yeah which i completely get and in all lots of the reviews of her work it's just comparing her to those guys yeah um i think that that um yeah that essay was originally a speech as well that was then published. Um, so she asked the question, who am I writing for? Who am I writing toward? I think it's probably partly because it's like her first collection and she wants to, she has this like desire to prove herself. Definitely. Um, Definitely. But it made me interested because did you, you know, she says there's a little white man in all of us. <laughs> did you read Taken it? out of context, Jess. <laughs> Very, very metaphorically. Um, did you read it in that way? Do you read in that way, do you think? Yeah, probably. I think it's like you have to really actively and consciously not read in that way because that's just the automatic way you read. Mm-hmm. Like everything in language and culture, like the automatic neutral thing is male, right? Yeah. And so I think that you have to really work at finding other narratives and other values Um and that's, I've partly got away from that a lot in at university because a lot of the things I read weren't by white men. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think that you read like that. And I think, I, like, we can't completely escape who we are, so we probably read more as, like, white people. Mm-hmm. And she talks about that in that speech, that essay, about how um, she's actually not recognised her own privilege in some cases and that really shocked her but I love the way she talks about it because she's like we can't deny that we have those moments of ignorance like we can't brush them under the carpet and pretend that we're perfect we have to acknowledge them yeah 
Um, She's saying you need to stare at them, yeah. you know, in the face. You need to be yeah. in those moments more often because it's it's in recognising that privilege that you're able to, Yeah, I don't know, have a kind of... I don't know what I'm trying to say. Understanding. Um, mm. And she talks a lot about her writing style as well, how it's stark and unflinching and unemotional and brittle. And a lot of the reviews... And I guess the reason why she won the award, a lot of people praise that mm-hmm. style of writing, almost as if it was the other way around. It would be too feminine and not literary enough. Yeah. Um, and now she's in the position when she's writing this essay is that she's had a baby and she's leading a completely different life. She's in this domestic sphere. Everything's about the home and her baby. And think she kind of says she feels like she's got nothing to write about and that's angering her confusing her because she wants to write about her experiences but she's so used to thinking in this very male way and probably what she's writing is brilliant yeah but she reads it and that little white man inside her is probably saying like this is shit (laughs) because it's too flinching yeah i've just got this proper image of like a little lego man or something yeah, and that's what it is. Little like, um, but I mean, I was gonna say I find I do know what she means by that because when I read it, I thought it was I thought it was really good, and I really liked her tone. And I think part yeah. of that was the kind of like bleakness and the, you know, when she says she describes an old man getting a boner, like she doesn't really shy away from things like that. She'll just say that. I need to read that quote. Okay, yeah. I can write old men, I can write sex, I can write abortion, I can write hard, unflinching, unsentimental, I can write an old man getting a boner. (laughs) That's so good. Which is the, yeah, Yeah. the epitome of unsentimental. I did like that about it, but at the same time, I I think, yeah, she writes like a man in that sense, but she also writes like a woman, and I, Mm. in a very real way, I don't think... You know, a man could have written some of the things that she writes about. And also, I think we spoke about this before, but um, it's kind of ironic, I think, or interesting that she says the stuff she's writing now, now she's had a baby, is um, quite, I, don't, I can't remember the word she uses, but almost like a little bit fluffy, like a little bit cosy, mm. like, yeah, domestic. But, you know, that is the sphere where the most violence in our society happens. Oh, God, that is the yeah. most brutal environment. Yeah, and it's, for it's the majority a complete of fallacy that it's seen that women can't write about violence because... They know it the best. Women know it the best, yeah. And she writes violence really well. Yeah. In that it isn't clichéd um, or sensationist. It's just this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And it's violence not in a maybe the way you'd first think of violence either. It's it's more subtle, it's more, you know, it exists in words, it exists in, it's more pervasive than just someone hurting. Which again is completely linked to the the violence against the land in this situation. And there's a critic called Rob Nixon who talks about slow-moving disasters. Slow-moving disasters that star nobody... And that's exactly what's happening to the land, exactly what happens to women. Mm-hmm. Like, as a, if you look at it sort of on a grand scale, violence against women is a slow-moving disaster. Yeah. Um, but it's never seen in that wide-scale way. It's seen as individuals, and this yeah. happened. 
Um, and there's no, yeah, there's no heroes, there's no one starring role. It's just all these anonymous people over and over again. Yeah. Do you know what bit I loved about that essay on pandering, the bit that really... Um, I really identified with is the bit where she's talking about watching boys do stuff. Oh, she yeah. says, "Oh, the the thing I've been doing most of my life," and she talks about it almost like a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, my hobby, watching boys do stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it's so true. What, what when she's like watching musicians? Yeah, play watching guitar. boys do this, watching boys do that, and it it definitely harks back to kind of when you're a teenage girl. I think teenage yeah. girls do the most watching because yeah. they kind of watch boys they hang around boys while boys are playing video games or while yeah. boys are playing sport or while boys are doing whatever it is that's making them the people they're going to become and girls are just hanging around watching them yeah <laughs> that's so true I like that she's got a really really like dry sense of humor yeah a really dark sense of humor um and very self self-deprecating in that essay and I find it really funny yeah yeah me too I, I really, really, really like her <laughs> I find it interesting when she says she had a baby because pregnancy does not come across well in this book. That's another thing we could talk about yeah. is is the theme of pregnancy and babies and also like the absence of a positive maternal figure. Mm-hmm. You've got all these pregnant women and then you've got all these narratives around women who didn't have positive relationships with their mums or mm-hmm. didn't have a mother. Yeah. I guess we've already spoken a little bit about the pregnancy thing and the expectations versus reality, but it happens again in um, The Archivist, where the girl is heartbroken by the fact she's just broken up with a man and her sister has a young kid and the girl learns she's pregnant in it, obviously by the Mm. man who she's been broken up with and she's dealing with the fact that she's um, pregnant and actually you never... Find out what she does about it, do you? Well, it's not, you're not sure for quite a lot of the story whether she definitely is pregnant. Mm. And then she kind of just like assumes she's pregnant. Partly wishful thinking, probably. What you think she's wishing she is pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. In a way, that would be the ultimate, because the whole point of the story is she's archiving things he's left behind. The museum of, what was it? The museum of love lost or something. Yeah. Some cringy thing, she calls it. Um, But yeah, I guess having a baby is the ultimate collecting because it's kind of sad and pathetic because she doesn't have much of his, so she's, like, pouring all this meaning into, like, an empty cigarette packet or... Like a crumpled receipt Yeah, an old sock. Yeah. If she could have a baby that had his DNA in it... (laughs) Yeah, that would be the ultimate (laughs) collector's item. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pregnancy doesn't get a good... Um... But I don't know, though. I feel like the characters like re- like are really reluctant to put their faith in babies and new life because of the way they are, but they kind of... think it's self-doubt? Yeah, I think they actually do believe in it because a lot of them have sisters, and she has a sister in real life as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have sisters who have children or are pregnant, and they just exude this positivity and hope, and I think... The characters, the protagonists, like, are on the precipice of feeling that, but are almost too scared to put all their hope in this little, like, Mm. vulnerable thing. But what about the bit also in The Archivist where she reminisces about her sister Carly having just given birth and telling her that she doesn't love the baby? Yeah, she had postnatal depression, didn't she? 
and then she, that's again it's the past coming back really because they didn't have a, a mother who was really stable enough mm-hmm. to give them a, an easy childhood really and maybe she feels like it's this like recurring secular um trait of their family yeah yeah so in a way it's like it's not something that's objectively bad it's something that there's some kind of subjective barrier for those people that they can't or they're struggling to get over but I think like as we know with postnatal depression it can actually just happen to anyone and has no kind of bearing on that kind of thing so Mm. it's like again she's making her own narrative out of that to justify her feelings towards yeah yeah yeah. having children and also the fact that yeah she's had that experience with her mum she that is a thing that's an obstacle to her seeing herself as a mum or so that idea that there, there are those obstacles again links back to this constant kind of having to reconcile the past with the present um and the fact that you know you have not just your own past, you have your parents' past, you have ancestors' past, um, which is something Claire Watkins references as well in, in the um, Ghost's Cowboys, the first story, and which is an autobiographical true detail, was that her father was um, at Charles Manson's ranch, a close friend of his, if he had friends, um, and he left before the whole murder thing but he was there so it's that idea that you are constantly you're almost saddled or weighed down by these things that have happened in the past and you're constantly trying to reconcile that your relatives actions your own actions with what you're capable of in the present in the future um yeah so that links back to the whole kind of thing yeah and I think her description of her father links to all the characters throughout the collection she says um in the first story Um, which has a lot of autobiographical traits. She says, My father didn't kill anyone and he's not a hero. It isn't that kind of story. To me, that does sum up the whole collection. Um, The protagonists do awful things to themselves and to those they love and those around them. Um, But they're not killers. They're not out of the ordinary. They aren't heroes. and They're not really famous. They're not lauded by anyone. But they're not villains either. They're not villains either. Um, they show they also show strength and like a begrudging sense of surviving in this land and finding hope in the things around them um and although in her stories Watkins is digging into the history of the west and there's just repeated acts of violence against land and against women and disenfranchised people um that her stories are very fragmented, that they show a really piecemeal and personal way of digesting this violence because it can be quite an alienating and maybe unbearable experience to kind of think of all of that violence. Um, but her very small way of digesting this, every way, everyday ways that the characters are coping is like her method, I think. Um, and the characters are staying put, they're not... It's not about finding a new pristine wilderness to start again um, and to to silence and to own and to extract everything you can from it. It's about staying put where you are and, and coping and finding hope and trying to an extent to, like you said, um, deal with your past and create your own stories for the future. Mm-hmm. And although she doesn't like really mention like Native Americans a lot... Um, I think this is their sort of like the invisible na- narrative throughout this collection. Um, so many of Native American tribes and reservations are located in 
large, the largest areas of strip mining and other really um, degrading acts of violence against the land, which seep into the water table, which make the water undrinkable, which lead to cancer, so it has a direct effect on the people. But um, in conte contemporary Native American culture, um, they're not leaving, they're staying put and fighting back um, to highlight that there is value in that place um, and how the broader environmental and social injustices are linked. Um, yeah. And that really goes against the way, you know, we think about waste in capitalist culture, that we can just put it in a box and dump it somewhere and separate mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, well, that idea that you can't escape an ideology, like it's, you can't just, mm. is a very radical idea. Which links to something I read when I did my masters which really like just reminded me of this collection um is a piece of writing by someone called michael rolf trulio i think that's how you say his name called silencing the past and he says the ultimate mark of power may be its invisibility the ultimate challenge the exposition of its roots which i just love the way he uses that metaphor of exposing the roots of something because mm -hmm. that is what claire watkins is doing throughout this collection yeah digging and unearthing and excavating multiple narratives that compete with each other and they don't just all fall into this one clear story of this is what happened. Um, the characters are struggling and surviving, not erasing their histories but doing what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Which very seamlessly <laughs> leads on <laughs> to something we referenced earlier about um, her opinion on... Um, dystopian kind of fiction but not just fiction I guess it's a whole genre and it's quite a prevalent one mm. I know we should probably reference the dissertation we both read by I don't I can't remember her name <laughs> we will edit that in at the end <laughs> well no we'll put a link to it on we'll put the a link to it yeah. yeah but I actually read um a Guardian interview with Claire Watkins and oh, she explicitly she explicitly references dystopias as well oh, um and she she says some quite funny, dry things about it. So she says the reason that she doesn't like them is because it's the um, the same emotional key struck again and again and again. And she says, how come nobody's ever having sex in the apocalypse or telling <laughs> jokes? And this is what um, the dissertation we've both read and stuff we've been discussing kind of is about this idea that a dystopia is separate somehow fresh, somehow new, and there's something kind of glamorous about it. Like, the apocalypse has happened, the world has ended, there's almost, like, no hangover from the past. It's mm. just like, oh, things are really shit now and we live in this world, so the Hunger Games is used as an example. Yeah. And there's almost something kind of appealing about it and something we quite like because it's like everything's been destroyed, now we we're back to this kind of, like, primitive, like, hunting kind of thing. And what she does, which is completely anti-that, is says, no, we... It's almost, it's almost worse than a dystopia because yeah. we're constantly around these this waste and this situation that we've created and that kind of... The late capitalism and the ruins of it, and the fact that people are just going to suffer more and more and more, and that environmental devastation, there's almost like there's no newness. There's no after yeah. that. It's just that. 
and that's and, always worked. And the way capitalism works is that it will just adapt. Like it's not, we're probably not going to just destroy the world. It will just, the world will just be a lot worse. Yeah. Like, whereas I think dystopias, like you said, they erase everything that went before, and there's always a clear baddie. There's always a clear um, hierarchy, and that's a lot easier to fight against mm-hmm. when you when you're being oppressed by that like obvious evil lord of the manor but the way it works now it's so diffuse and so um very much like in capitalist realism it's very hard to put your finger on like who's responsible and yeah that isn't going to make loads of money in the cinemas because that's not a very satisfying narrative to go no. and lose yourself in um, it's messy and yeah. there's not much hope or there's less hope of saviour or salvation whereas if you have a hunger game situation like you said obvious baddie mm. you just need to beat that person or that you know authoritarian kind of regime and then you've done it capitalism doesn't work like that it's yeah. kind of has a plasticity to it yeah it's constantly adapting it will adapt to whatever whatever we do to the environment however it changes on the surface it will still be making profit and there will be people benefiting from it um and I guess that's what's really political and powerful about this collection um that like you said she she isn't just writing about a dystopia she's writing about the now the very unglamorous mm-hmm. slow destruction and violence that people in the land are experiencing every day um and I think that ties into how she views literature, or I, I think I view literature like this as well, or writing, is that it's not just about leisure, it's not just about losing yourself in the story, um, it's, it's creating an alternative value system. Mm-hmm. She has given so much value to this land that throughout the, the narrative of the West and America has just been deemed something we can use and just like destroy and then throw aside. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's creating this system of value outside of that, um, which I think is a lot harder to do than writing a dystopian novel. <laughs> yeah. So, I think we might have basically finished. Um, it just leaves us to rate it, and Jess wanted to read her favourite bit. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to read that and then we'll rate it? <laughs> I'll read my favourite bit first. I can't believe my favourite bit hasn't come up in like our discussions. Mm. We didn't really talk about, I know we talked about gold and we talked about Las Vegas, we didn't really talk about casinos very much. Oh yeah, that bit. Um, my favourite bit is about casinos. Yeah, we actually didn't talk about like Vegas really. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's in the first story. Um, and I don't necessarily like this bit because it's really poignant. I just like um, the writing of it. Mm. Okay, so she's talking to a man... Um, who's come to interview her about her connection with the Manson um, thing. And they're sitting in a a casino. And she says, A casino can make an average man lovely. The lights are dim, the ceiling low and mirrored. The machines light his face from below in a soft, sweet blue. As they turn to reveal themselves on the screen, the electric playing cards reflect in his eyes as quick glints of light. The dense curtain of cigarette smoke filters the place fuzzy, as if what the two of you do there isn't actually happening, as if it were already in the past as if your life wasn't a life but an old nostalgic movie. Jewel in the sun, perhaps. You don't want to know what a casino can do to a man already lovely. Oh. 
I do like I that. I like that as well. That's just really sums her up because I find like she's not moralising. She's not like, oh, casinos, they're so mm. bad. Like she really is honest about yeah. the appeal of them. Um, so rate it then. Okay. I was going to read my favourite bit, but it was just a crap joke. So <laughs> I won't bother. No, please do. I can't find it though. <laughs> this is it. You've already read the bone a bit. I thought that was your favourite That bit. wasn't from the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it the bit where he actually gets a boner? <laughs> no. Right. This is, this is just my... It just makes me chuckle. It's actually not very profound at all. <laughs> Gwen isn't a music lover. She probably hasn't listened to anything besides NPR since her senior year of high school. Once we rented a car and drove to Santa Cruz and I made her listen to Common and she complained the whole way there. And here she was with Paul Simon... <laughs> I thought, if you were a musical hermit and your older sister had been recommending new bands and burning you CDs since you're in the sixth grade, why would you suddenly, after all these years, run out and pick up Paul Simon? Which is to say, of all things to listen to, she picks that. That's really cracked me up. (laughs) Is that from the last one? That is from the last one, which is called Graceland. Aptly. Um, okay, so we're rating it. Mm-hmm. Um, shall I go first? You can go first. I haven't actually decided. It's hard to rate because I feel like we haven't rated anything before. So what are we comparing it yeah. to? Obviously, you're it's not going to give it a 10. It's going to be a messy business. No, I'm not going to give anything a 10 ever. Um, How close-minded of you? <laughs> like, is five, like, really bad? You're not going to give it a five, No, I'm not giving it five, but I want us to decide. Oh, okay, so what would be a five? Like, would, like, a trashy page-turner crime that didn't oh, challenge no. you be a Oh, no, okay, no, so that would be, like, a two. Okay. Okay. And a more intelligent crime would probably be <laughs> a four. I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just saying I'm never going to read crime and crime's never going to be good, but you know, you know what I mean. This is really hard, because I feel like I'm going to... Okay, it doesn't matter, Emily, shut up. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give it... Seven little white men inside me out of ten. <laughs> um, what did you? What are I you gave it higher it? than that. Oh, I gave it eight point five. We didn't say we were doing point five. <laughs> okay, so I originally put eight, okay. and then I added the point five because Maybe I felt like you that can was do a point mean. five if you want. That's fine. Okay, I'll change mine to seven point five though. Okay. Eight, so what are you giving 8.5 watts out of 10? Casino chips. <laughs> okay. Um, I have given mine 7... Po- I've given it 7.5 because... More because I want to see more from her. Mm-hmm. So in a way, that's like a backhanded compliment. I think she's really brilliant, but I do feel like she's holding back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I would want just to read more and for it to go on for longer. And I'm also not giving it more because there are moments in it which really, like, jarred with me and just took me out of the feel of it. Like we were saying in Rondine Alnido, she uses the phrase our girl to describe mm-hmm. the protagonist. And I found that a bit, like, like a, what do they say, like, affectation. Like, is that a thing? I just, I don't know. I don't know. But, like... Just didn't think it added to it. I didn't think it was necessary. I felt like she was going, oh, I haven't used this way of saying things. I'm just going to do that. Okay, yeah. To show she could, to show her versatility. But I just thought it made it... It kept reminding me of, like, 
the fact you were reading something kind yeah, of which yeah which obviously isn't always like a negative thing I just felt it didn't really fit so yeah and the reason I didn't give it higher is for similar reasons I also didn't really like that but um I'd say my issue was more with It's kind of what I liked about it is the same thing as what I didn't like about it. So I really loved um, the kind of bleakness and stuff like that. But I guess I just sometimes found with the characters, it made them a little bit, made me a bit distant from them. Mm. Because I maybe felt a little bit alienated from them in a certain sense. Like I I felt like certain bits were trying to be a little bit too cool. And some of the characters were maybe a little bit... Yeah, and you don't know whether she wants you to be annoyed at them or not. Yeah. I don't know, I just found some of the protagonists a little bit kind of... Stoical? I don't know. I do do think that's really hard because, like, I feel like really great literature does give you characters like that. But it does, but that's what I don't like about it. And I guess that's kind of... Because it does remind me of the kind of, like... Literati, it reminds me very much of a kind of Booker yeah. prize winner, you know, where the protagonist is always a little bit like that. And I just think humans aren't like that all the time. Like Not humans time, laugh, yeah. make stupid jokes, and they say stupid shit, and they make mistakes. And, you know, even if you're really depressed or whatever, sometimes you're going to go crazy and just dance to a song or whatever. And I just feel like mm. there isn't that. And for me, this happens quite a lot in literature. There's not enough variety or inconsistency. I yeah. think that's the thing, they're too consistent. But that is really nitpicking because they're short stories. Yeah. How can you create a fully rounded character with inconsistencies? And It reminds... It's weird. Like, I think maybe we treat different kinds of media that tell different stories differently because I feel like a lot of my favourite TV programmes are very much, like, have characters like that. Mm-hmm. Like, The Sopranos. Like, there's no one in it who's, like, that redeemable in mm-hmm. a way. Or they're so complicated and just... They they're like they're like the characters in this collection, and it does grind on you a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see what you mean. I'd be interested to read her novel. Yeah, me too. Because I think it's a lot easier to not do that in a novel, and with short stories, it's probably impossible. So it's probably yeah. an unfair criticism. But but anyway, there I you have go. To say something bad about it. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, just to finish, do we want to announce the book we're reading for the next podcast? Yeah, so I'll say, because I've picked the book for the next podcast. We haven't read it yet, so we can't promise it's actually going to be any good. <laughs> but what we're going to try and do is um, try and kind of pick things that maybe link in a way to the thing we've done. Mm-hmm. So things that maybe naturally come up. Um, and the thing that naturally came up while we were reading around um, Battleborn is when we were reading on Pandering. <laughs> when we were reading on Pandering, she references um, a book by someone called Rebecca Solnit called Men Explain Things to Me. And from what I understand, it's um, a non-fictional collection of essays. So we're going to read that. So everyone go to your local library, <laughs> take that out read it and then join in with us thank you all for listening thank you bye bye